This morning, I want to talk about the reality of culture. And by culture, I don't primarily mean culture outside of the church, like the societal culture. What I mean is culture inside the church. Every family, every small group, every business, and every church has its own culture. And what that culture is and what makes it unique is really important to think about. This last week in our all-staff meeting, we were talking about the culture of our staff, and we have a couple words that we use to sort of be our direction as far as how we want our staff to operate in relationships with one another. In our conference rooms, you'll, you would see these signs talk about trust, encouragement, and accountability, and mission. Those are the, the words that we want to characterize the culture of our staff. You leave the sanctuary and you turn around in the atrium, you'll see sort of banded around this very room are some core values, core values that we want to really emulate as a church family. Those values are the preeminence of Jesus, the authority of the word, extravagant grace, redemptive community, unity in diversity, and the call to go. These are the, the things that, that make College Park unique doesn't necessarily make us better. It's just this is what we're like as a church family. We sort of live out those values. Tonight at our worship-based prayer time and our members meeting, there'll be things that we do, and the way in which we do them is really all designed to sort of emulate a culture that we're trying to create as, a, as an elder-governed but congregationally ruled church. Last week, we unpacked the text in 1 Peter chapter 5 regarding what are elders supposed to do that's part of the culture of the church as well. They're to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. And I hope that you were encouraged with what you heard last week about what our elders are trying to do in terms of providing leadership to this body. We're coming now, though, to the end of 1 Peter. It feels as though Peter has begun sort of his descent. It's becoming a bit more reflective and personal. And our text today addresses a very important reality that should characterize the church, especially when it's in the midst of its exile. The singular word that we're going to talk about this morning is not a new concept, and yet it is incredibly important, especially when pressure begins to mount, and it is the word humility. The church of Jesus Christ, in the midst of her exile, is to be marked by this reality of humility. It is vital to the church. It's vital to the church's life. Humility really is what makes the church work. It's what makes relationships work. Just, just think, for instance, about how many problems in life, how many problems inside the church happen because of an absence of humility. Some of you have gone through church experiences that were very painful. And my, my guess is that you could look back on that and you could, you could realize if people had just been more humble, most of what happened probably wouldn't have happened. Some have even suggested that humility is the oil that, that makes the Christian life work. And then the question is, when is humility most tested? When is it tested in your life? When are you most tempted not to be humble? I would suggest to you, it's true in my own life, that when there's pressure, or when I feel frustrated because of circumstances that are happening, when, when, when the pressure of a, a situation or the dynamics are around me, it is more likely that my beaker, so to speak, will get bumped 
and this raw sediment of my pride that's just sort of laying dormant suddenly surfaces. And whether it's a relationship with a friend, whether it's a conflict with your spouse, whether it's uh, challenges with your kids, difficult circumstances, or even just some sort of cultural opposition, humility is the hardest to live out when the pressure is on. So this morning we want to look at 1 Peter 5 and see if we can figure out what humility means, and then secondly, where does it apply? So we're first going to take some time defining humility, and then we're going to see how it applies in three particular realms in this text. So we'll start with a definition of humility. We need to start with a definition because this word is so familiar that in some respects it loses its impact. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's probably of no surprise to you that the Bible commends humility. But what does it mean? Well, let's see how it's used, first of all, in the text. The word humble or humility is used three times in our passage. In verse 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Then it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's the second use. And then the third is a command in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. What you need to know, in this text, all three words regarding humility are the same. It's just how they're used is different. The form of them is unique. So what we find here is that humility is both commanded and it's to be expected. It's something that we're to do and it's something that we're to be. Humility is something that we are to embrace, and it's something that we're to live out. It is to be practiced. And at the end of the day, humility is something that should characterize the follower of Jesus. So how would we define it simply? If you take a note, you might just want to write this down. The word humble essentially means to make low or to bring down. It can be used for the physical act of bowing. It can be used of embarrassment when suddenly you're brought to a, a lower level. It can also be used for circumstances that are hard or inglorious. For example, the Apostle Paul uses the word for humility in Philippians 4 and verse 12 when he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. So the word there, to be brought low, that's the idea of humility. It is that you not only know what it's like to have a lot, but it also means you know what it's like to go without. Maybe to go without a compliment, to go without admiration, to go without recognition, to, to, to be in a position where you've been brought low. The word also, here's another way to think of this, I like this one, the word can mean to make the heart small. I like that. Now it's not in the sense where you make the heart small because it's big, no, the, the idea is that you're recognizing that the heart was small, but somehow it got a little more inflated. The idea is it's brought back to its appropriate size, kind of a, a re-leveling or bringing it into alignment. A few examples of, of this. In Matthew 18, Jesus said this regarding conversion. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, there it is, become small, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus uses the example of a child, and he says, you must become like this because you are this as it relates to God's grace. 
Our problem is that we begin to think that we don't need the mercy and the grace of God. So when it says that we need to make the heart small, the idea is understanding who you really are. Jesus says you're really, you need to be like children because that's who you really are. This is one of the values, for instance, of um, going on an overseas vision trip is that you get a sense of how big the world is and in so doing, how small your world is. Or maybe you remember going off to college. You were like the, the valedictorian of your class, the track star. Your name still is in your high school and you went to, on, the, on the board in the gym with how fast your personal record time was and then you go to college and there's 15 people who are better than you. It's sort of a, a stunning reminder that you're not maybe as big as what you thought you were. Remember, a friend of mine was in seminary, and he suddenly realized this. All his life, he'd gotten A's on his papers. I mean, he was an A student, and he got this paper back from a professor. His name was Carl Hoke. Carl Hoke was a scary professor. <clears throat> he was kind of a German guy, and he talked like this. <laughs> and I had him in a class in First Peter, actually. We had to translate the, the, the text from Greek to English, and at any moment, he could call on you, and you'd have to stand and read the verse, and then he would ask for the declension of every single word. And if you got it wrong, he would tell the whole class, no, that's not right. Sit down, broke up. Next. And he'd, so you're coming in, you're trembling, like holding the Bible. Like, oh. Well, this friend of mine, he got his paper back from Carl Hoke, and he got a B on his paper. And he looked at his neighbor's paper. He read his neighbor's paper, and his neighbor's paper wasn't any better than his, and his neighbor got an A. Well, he was ticked off about it because he's an A student, and he got a B. And so he went and appealed his grade to Dr. Carl Hoke. He told me he did that, and I said, how'd that go? And he said, yeah, not well. I didn't think it would go well. Here's what happened. He walked up to Dr. Carl Hoke, and he, he said, Dr. Hoke, I, um, my name, I'll use his name John to protect his anonymity. He said, my name is John. And, Hi, John. What can I do for you? And he said, um, I got this paper back and I got a B. Yeah, you gave, a, you gave me a B on it. He says, well, the, the, the problem is I've read someone else's paper and my paper's just as good as theirs and you gave them an A. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is, is that I get A's on my papers and you gave me a B. And he says, so you think you're an A student? My friend said, yes, I do. And he said, well, then maybe you need to see yourself as an A student who got a B. Now go sit down. <laughs> Make the heart small, right? So humility is helping us understand who we really are. And when it relates to who God is, here's where the definition becomes very practical. It means that we understand who we are in light of who he is. Humility means that you understand God's grace to you. It means that you have an appropriate understanding of what your need is and what God has done for you through the person and work of Christ. This is why the gospel now becomes so important for our definition of humility. If you're not a follower of Jesus, listen carefully because I want you to understand why the Bible now extols humility, and here's why. Because the Bible tells us that God is holy that he's the creator of the universe, that he alone is worthy of our praise, our adoration, and our worship. It, it tells us that, that mankind, we have rebelled against God's holiness, we have fallen short of his glory, and as a result, there's 
no hope for forgiveness and reconciliation in and of ourselves. That humanity is in a dangerous position. We've rebelled against our creator and there's no possibility of us doing anything about it to reconcile ourselves. And the beautiful story of the gospel is that God comes to hopeless, helpless, condemned sinners and he rescues them by giving them the righteousness of Christ. In fact, Romans chapter three puts it this way and then connects it to the issue of boasting. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To which then Paul says, so then what becomes of our boasting? His answer is, it is excluded. Why? Because God gives people righteousness. He grants them forgiveness. He reconciles them to himself. And as a result, these people who have been redeemed by Christ, they worship and adore him because he's the one who rescued them. In other words, the entire message of the Bible is that God graces those who deserved condemnation. He rescues them from judgment by giving them the righteousness of Christ, and then the implication is, is that everything they have, they've received. They've not earned anything. All of it is a gift, it's all of grace. To which then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse seven, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So the entire Christian life and all of Christian culture inside the church and in small groups and in relationships is to be marked by a God-centered, grace-receiving humility. And this, this mindset of humility involves, I think, three things. It involves understanding something, it involves reminding ourselves of something, and it involves responding to something. So, Take humility now as a definition, and let me unpack this just a little further. It involves understanding. It involves understanding who God is, understanding who you are. That unless you have a biblical view of God, of your sin, of your gifts, of his grace, you, you, you won't understand how to be able to navigate through the relentless pursuit within your own self to make yourself something. So we have to understand who God is and who we are. In fact, that's the first step in becoming a follower of Jesus, is understanding that God is holy, understanding that you're not, and understanding that's a problem. And God has reconciled that problem through the finished work of Jesus. So it involves understanding this, and then secondly involves reminding ourselves of this, because here's the thing, most of you who've just heard me say this, you already knew that, that this wasn't new information, but, at some point last week, you forgot it, at least for a second, and you thought, man, I'm somebody. You can't talk to me that way. Or someone offers some kind of criticism, and you're like, oh, I did that so much better than anybody else that you would know. And we begin to forget who we really are. I remember in college, I got put on an intercollegiate speech team, and they gave my first speech in a competition, and I thought I nailed it. It was the best speech I ever gave. And I'm standing up there, there's like, I don't know why they did this, but they lined us up, four or five, we're in this fairly large auditorium, and they're announcing who won. And they went through third place, so-and-so. My name wasn't on the list, and I was like, of course, because I'm first, I killed it. And then second, <laughs> they announced my name, I was like, oh yeah, awesome, nailed it. First place, they announced it, 
not me. And apparently there was a look of shock on my face. <laughs> because when I got in the van, an upperclassman said, hey, Vrogop, little advice to you. Yeah, when your name isn't called, please don't look shocked. <laughs> I'd given the best speech of my life. And yet I was put into an environment where I wasn't the best. And I needed a three-panel judge, a panel of three judges to tell me that. They were terribly wrong, but that's beside the point. <laughs> our tendency is to conflate our own worth. Happens in small ways, happens in significant ways, and we need a regular reminder about who we are. By the way, that's why we're gathered here today. That's why we sing songs, that's why we pray, that's why we hear testimonies of baptism, why you sitting underneath the hearing of God's word, why you ought to read the word and pray on a regular basis, because your heart will very quickly go down a path where you'll be convinced that you're the center of the universe. There is a, a narrative within your own soul that can easily take over. And then third, it involves responding humbly. I say responding because humility cannot just be something that's intangible. If I were to ask you, were you humble that last week? You can't say, theoretically. <laughs> There's no theoretical humility. You either are or you aren't. There's no philosophical humility. There may be a philosophy of humility, but at the end of the day, humility is something that has to show up. Because humility, at the end of the day, is the absence of self. And that has to be demonstrated in the way in which we live. There's a great little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. If you've got an hour this week, I commend it to you. I think it's about 30 pages. You could read it very quickly. He quotes C.S. Lewis in the book. He writes this. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking that they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying that they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Did you hear the difference? Gospel humility is not thinking more of myself, nor is it thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Keller goes on and says, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. A truly gospel-humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel-humble person. So what humility then means is I understand who I am in light of who God is. It means that I remind myself about this reality and I respond practically in a manner that fits with this definition. Some of you are here today because God has something in store for you on Monday and Tuesday of this week where he's gonna invite you to practice humility. Just wait. You're gonna meet him or her and go, I know why you're in my life today. You're gonna look at the situation, oh, God wants me to be humble. So let me just ask you to do a quick personal inventory. How often this last week did you think of God's glory versus your own? 
Did you spend time getting your mind and heart around who God is through the reading of the word and prayer? Some of you have not spent hardly any time in the word, and what's crazy is you're more easily offended. It's actually not crazy. It's just crazy that you haven't put this together. You're more easily offended. There's more conflict in your life. The the reality is is you can't figure out why you can't get along with people like you did weeks previously, and the connection is, is you keep bringing more and more of you into the equation when you don't spend time thinking about the glory of one who is far greater than you. Did you face any conflict this last week or problems? that now when you think about it, looking back, it really is a problem of humility? Did God place anything in your life this week in order to help you understand and see how prevalent pride really is? See friends, the problem with pride is it's so central to our humanity that we need to think about humility probably more than what we even realize. Because the dangerous thing about pride is that when you have it, you don't know it because you're proud. So humility is to be laid low. It's to have the heart that's small. So now with that definition, we haven't even unpacked fully the text, we just unpacked these words. Let's apply this quickly into three realms. Realm of authority, realm of attitude, and the realm of anxiety. So first, authority. Peter applies it first and foremost to young people. Verse five, likewise, you who are younger be subject to your elders. Now, he says the word, uses the word likewise in verse five. Likewise, you who are younger. I I realize that he doesn't mention the word humility, but in light of the word likewise, it's implied. Here's why. Because in verse four, Peter talked about elders, and then he talks about the chief shepherd. And the idea is this, that elders need to know who the chief shepherd is. And so then he says, likewise. So he's carrying the same theme in verse 4 over to verse 5, and he says that these younger ones are to be subject to their elders. This word subject is the same word we've seen over and over throughout First Peter, where we're commanded to be subject to earthly authorities in chapter 2. In verse 13, we're to be subject to our employers. In verse 18 of chapter 2, wives are to be subject to their disobedient husbands so they might win them. So the idea of this this submissiveness is there's to be this, this normative posture of obedience. It means that you joyfully follow those who are in authority. Now, why would Peter why would Peter specify those who are younger? Well, let me ask you. What were you like when you were younger? How did you view authority? How did you view spiritual authority? My guess is that your story is not that dissimilar from mine, that when I look back when I was younger, however you want to define that, I think that you could in general say that there's a pretty clear pattern with younger people, and that is that I, when I was younger, could allow my zeal and my lack of experience to tip me towards being either disrespectful dismissive or even disobedient to those who were in authority. For instance, when I was a youth pastor, I would look at the senior pastor and what he was doing, and I had two years of experience (laughs) and a master's of divinity, and I saw what he did, and I would think to myself, my goodness, he doesn't know what he's doing. Why doesn't he ask my opinion about these things more? I could tell him. 
And I could explain what the Bible says. I could give him all sorts of advice. And the reality is he does not know what he's doing. Or he'd make a decision and say, oh, that's a ridiculous decision. There's no way that decision should be made. And as a young person, spinning, spinning, spinning inside my mind, all the reasons. If I was in charge, here's what I would do. And then one day I became in charge. I remember looking out the window saying to myself, I had no idea how hard and complicated this job really is. So, young people, let me speak to you, no matter how you define young, let me encourage you that one of the ways that you express humility is by responding to those who are more spiritually mature than you and those who are in spiritual leadership over you and realizing that part of the way that you express humility is by following those people who are ahead of you. Last week I encouraged young men to aspire to be an elder. And let me encourage all of you who are younger to look around you and find someone who's older, someone who has more spiritual maturity than you, and seek out their influence and their mentoring of those of you who are spiritually young. Don't write someone off just because they're not in your peer class. Your parents, if you're a teenager, are not cool, but they're still wise, and there'll be a day when you're not cool, and hopefully you'll be wise. So be careful about being sinfully critical of those who are in authority. One of the most common expressions of pride for young people is how they respond to those in authority. A um, pastor that I listened to said this to the young people in his church, before you're gonna nail your 95 thesis on the door, you gotta be sure it's not your parents' door. In other words, you got to have a door and be out of the house. That's his point. Number two, attitude. Peter then expands the application of this text where he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. So he expands it. The word clothe yourselves is the idea of having something that's so characteristic of you that you are wearing it. It's like... Like, be who you are. It's like my basketball coach telling me, Mark, when you get in the post, be 6'5". He's not telling me to grow, but he's saying, you're 6'5". Act like it. Like, grab the ball and shove it down the guard's throat. Be 6'5". Right? That's what he means. He means be who you are. The idea is that you live out what's already true about you in the same way that Jesus, in John 13, was humbled by taking the form of a man still washes the disciples' feet and takes a posture of humility as he's already humbled. What's interesting is that this word, clothe yourselves, is directed specifically towards people with humility towards one another. Now you know why he says that. Isn't it true that the greatest struggles with being humble and the greatest manifestations of pride happen in the context of our relationships with one another. Someone says something, they do something, they don't say it the right way. And the fact of the matter is, if the church fundamentally is about relationships between people, then without humility, oh man, the church is a really hard place to live. Without humility, there's no unity, there's no peace. Without, unity, without humility, there's no reconciliation. No one asks for forgiveness. No one embraces repentance. No one accepts one another. Humility is the one thing that makes a difference in nearly everything inside the church. 
It's also the one thing that makes the biggest difference inside any kind of relationship. It's humility makes a difference in your small group. It's what makes a difference in your marriage. If you're dating someone, it's what makes the difference in your dating relationship. It's, it's what makes the difference in the fraternity, a Christian fraternity or a Bible study. The absence of it, oh, makes things very difficult. When someone offers you a critique and has a suggestion for you how you could do something better, and that moment, how full your heart is in regards to humility, will determine whether or not you listen and hear and have the potential to grow. Tim Keller says this, the self-forgetful person would never be hurt, particularly by criticism. It would not devastate them. It wouldn't keep them up late. It wouldn't bother them. Why? Because a person who is devastated by criticism is putting too much value on what other people think, on other people's opinions. The world tells people who are thin-skinned and devastated by criticism to deal with it by saying things like, who cares what they think? I know what I think. Who cares what the rabble thinks? It doesn't bother me. But the person who is self-forgetful is completely the opposite. When someone whose ego is not puffed up but filled up, he means you're filled up with the gospel, When they get criticism, it doesn't devastate them. They listen to it. They see it as an opportunity to change. The more we get to understand the gospel, the more we want to change. Listen, some of you, this could liberate you because anytime somebody ever tells you to do anything different, like maybe you're just driving home from church today and whoever's driving, your spouse says, hey, you're going a little too fast. Immediately something happens in your soul and you can either say, I appreciate that they're concerned about my speeding. I wouldn't want to get a ticket and wouldn't want me embarrassed as friends come by and honk, didn't listen to the sermon. I mean, you, you appreciate it. Or you can take the posture of, how dare you? You want to get in the seat and drive? Go ahead. Someone offers a particular input about how you should do something in the course of your job. You can either say, well, I want to learn how to change, or you can just be offended. You can even fake that you want criticism when you really don't. A few months ago, I came home and thought I did a particularly poor job on a Sunday and Walked in the door, and my wife's always encouraging. I said to her, man, I didn't, I didn't think Sunday went very well. And the reality was I was doing it. I was asking for a compliment for her to say, oh, no, it's the best sermon ever, sweetheart. Hug me, kiss me, you know, make some food. And, and she said, yeah, I mean, yeah, it wasn't your best one. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, I just go to bed, pull the covers up, and flip burgers at McDonald's tomorrow. I'm done, you know, just because the reality is I'm not asking because I want input. I'm asking because I'm insecure. And yet there's a security that should come to us because of the gospel, because of who we are in Christ, that should make us free to be able to love one another and help one another, and also realizing that if Christ loved me and has taken care of my sin debt, And if he loves me with this kind of love, should that not give me a rock-solid stability underneath my feet and somehow change how I operate in the world? You see, this is the vision that Peter has of what the community of Christ could be like. Does that characterize you? Does that characterize your small group? Are you the person in your small group that everybody has to walk walk on eggshells around because they're so worried about offending you because you're so touchy? The problem is not just that you think you have some kind of low self-esteem. Here's the problem. You have a low gospel esteem. You don't know the beauty of what it means to have been forgiven. You don't know the full extent of even the promise that's in this text where it says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's a promise and a warning in that text. The promise is you go down the humility path, God's gonna pour out grace to you. 
You're in the middle of a conflict and you go the 100% mile that you need to go to. You ask the person's forgiveness when you think, man, they better ask my forgiveness in return. Like, I'm gonna do this, but you better own 100%. And you kind of go down that path and they don't own it and you walk away thinking, I did everything I'm supposed to do. You know what the Bible says in that moment? God pours grace upon grace upon grace upon you. On the other side of the equation, there's a warning here. You know what it says? That God resists the proud. You know what that means? It means that God's against you. You get ongoing conflict. Some of you have walked from relationships to relationship, transferred from small group to small group. Some of you have gone from church to church to church. You keep finding conflict in all of these churches, and your conclusion is the church is broken, small groups are broken, people are broken, the Midwest is broken, the nation's broken, the world is broken. And well, the reality is, brother, you're broken. And you keep bringing the same you to all the situations. And God keeps bringing the same people into your life. And the question is, why not instead embrace humility and say, you know what, I need to put a mirror up and maybe I got a problem that I need to think about. Ever had it where your words just fall and they don't go anywhere? You talk to your kids, they go in one ear and out the other. You say things and they seem like they've got, they got no landing effect. It may be that God's opposing you. He knows that if he lets you be successful, you're going to grab the glory, so God's hindering that. God opposes the proud. There's difficult circumstances that come, sleeplessness, a troubled spirit, even some forms of depression come because we're so full of ourselves. Our lives are disappointed because we thought our lives were gonna be something significant. And God says, no, I'm significant. And he reminds us that we're rebellious sinners who've been saved by God's grace. So authority, attitude, finally here, anxieties. Verse six, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humble yourselves is a command. A command to not pick up something that you're not, but essentially, again, here to be who you are. You've been humbled, just embrace it. Embrace humility. You're a sinner saved by grace. You're not perfect, like embrace that. Just walk in the next week realizing I am not perfect, but I have a savior who is. Like that's your mindset, so that things don't go well. It's okay, you got a savior who covered all your sins, and if you're not exactly all your, what your dreams had hoped for your own life, it's okay, because you got an eternal inheritance waiting for you. Peter's trying to help us see beyond just the immediate, and then how do we deal with the pressure in the immediate. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. And then it says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you know that most forms of anxiety are subtle forms of pride? Where we, we can't control what's happening so we worry about it, we think about it, we mull on it. As if somehow that's going to do anything about it. How many of us have spent way too much time, sleepless nights, thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking? I could do this and this and this and this. And the reality is, what that is at the core is an assault on God's reign and his ability to have a mighty hand. When it says casting all your anxieties, it's important for you to know that's a participle and it's linked to the word humble, which means this. You, you embrace humility by casting. In other words, if you don't cast, you're proud. Or to be blunt, proud people don't pray. They don't pray because it's humbling to tell God, I don't know what to do. 
I'm scared, I'm nervous, I don't have an answer to this. Like that's humbling and that's exactly the reason that there are even difficulties in our lives. And so what Peter is saying is this, when these pressures come and these trials come and the culture around us begins to shift, what are you gonna do? You're gonna get angry, that's one route. Or in this text, you're gonna get anxious, that's another route. And in the middle of that is this world that pushes away the self-trust of anger and pushes away the self-trust of anxiety and says, God, I'm gonna humble myself, I'm gonna believe that you care for me, and I'm gonna keep casting my cares on you, I'm gonna lay this at your feet because I know that you care for me and I know that it's your mighty hand that I can trust in. One of the reasons why a shift in culture outside the church is really helpful at one level, is that pressure helps us to see what is really inside of us. And some of you are in one of those seasons right now. The pressure of culture, the challenging circumstances that are around you are surfacing things that you knew were there, but you like to keep them down. And can you just rejoice in the fact that the Bible knows the playbook of your soul and your solution and your path is to keep taking those burdens and and laying them at the feet, turning at the feet of Jesus, turning from your pride, and instead saying, God, I know that I can trust you. I'm gonna cast my anxieties on you because I know you care for me. So where does God find you today? Are there issues of authority in your life? Are there particular attitudes toward other people that are creating problems? Are there anxieties that you need to lay at the feet of Jesus? I gotta believe there's some of you who are hearing this message today, you're just absolutely miserable. But part of the problem of your miserableness, the reason that you're miserable, the reason you're so hard to live with and the reason things are so difficult is because of this reality, you still are trying to be God. And the faster you let go and say, I'm gonna trust in your mighty hand, I'm gonna lay this at your feet, the faster you'll be able to be on a pathway where God can pour grace upon grace upon grace. God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. You may be here today and not yet a follower of Jesus, and your pride may be eating your lunch, may have eaten out relationships, may have pushed you into some kind of substance, may have caused you to have problems at work, or you climbed the corporate ladder and you found unbelievable success only to find out it's not enough. And so you went from one thing to relationship to thing after thing after thing, and you feel this hole in your soul. And do you know that the Bible tells us that at the end of the day, the only one who can fill that hole in your heart is Christ? And so why not turn from your pride today and come to Jesus and say, I'm done. I need Christ to forgive me. This is the answer because I'm running and I'm making myself exhausted because I keep breaking my own existence. No matter where God finds you today, I just want to remind you that God gives grace to the humble and so why not turn to him for the first time or why not turn to him for the 100,000th time and say, God, here I am, a proud person and I just needed to be reminded of the importance of humility. I believe that you give grace to the humble. And when a people understands that and live that out, that's the kind of culture that can last when the outside culture begins to apply difficult pressure. That inside the church are a people who understand who God is, understand who they are, and say, we're a humble people because of the beauty of Jesus and his work.
pray together. Lord, we ask now for your for the application of your word in our lives. Lord, for someone here today who this is the moment when they cross the line and would say, Lord, I believe that you're my savior. I want to become a Christian today, Lord, that today you would birth people into your kingdom. And for those who know you, who are followers, that today might be a day of turning, a day of, remi- of, of remembrance of what humility is all about. So we want to thank you for hard circumstances. Thank you for hard people in our lives that remind us that we can still keep casting our cares upon you. So help us now to leave encouraged, exhorted, and in awe of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.